this morning. I want to welcome everybody who's with us. It's good to see everybody's uh, smiling and tired faces, both of you. Good to see everybody. But uh, I want to remind everybody that on Wednesday nights, uh, we'll be continuing our Bible study through Acts, and we'll be picking up on Acts 6 and 7, uh, if you want to join us on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. This morning, uh, this morning, we will continue our series, also uh, sort of out of Acts, uh, but we're going to be, uh, we, we've been doing what we call studying the service, which sort of looks at uh, some of the things listed there in Acts 2:42 through 47, and looking at how they influence uh, what we do here, what, what we call church, worshiping, praising, uh, the teaching, and things of that nature. And uh, this morning, this morning we're going we're gonna to break down a verse that we've probably read many times or sort of looked at, and have kind of talked around it, uh, but I think it's one that we can kind of skim over or even miss. So if you have your Bibles, look at Acts 2, and we're going to be studying verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Uh, If you recall, we've looked at verse 42 and, and 44 already in our series when we talked about devotion and what it means to sort of study the Word of God. Uh, We looked at uh, what it means for the church to be together and to be one. But 43 is kind of in the middle of those two things. And I think it's one we can kind of skip over. Uh, Usually, I I would say, because we don't always know what to do with it. It says, the wonders and the signs. I think I I read from us the ESV, but I want to read this in a couple different versions because it varies a little bit. But in the New King James, it says, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And the NIV says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So the first half of that kind of changes a little bit, depending on your translation. Uh, but all of them talk about the wonders and signs. And I think the wonders and signs is a phrase we see a lot in Scripture. Um, I think these stories are always really cool, you know, when they're doing miracles. They're neat to read about and, and sort of to, to imagine happening, but if I said to just look at verse 43, to ignore verse 42 and 44 for a second, to just look at verse 43, and if I said, tell me what this means to you today, where would you go with that? If I said that they were, they were fear upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done to the apostles, what does that mean for us today? I mean, there's a reason probably in our series, right, that we've talked about communion and fellowship and, and praising and some of these other things in the passage, because those are real easy. But wonders and signs, what do we do with that? I think it's kind of a hard one. Um, there's typically two kind of re- at least two reactions to this verse, or, or even the phrase wonders and signs anywhere in Scripture, and it sort of depends on how familiar you are with, with what we would call the, the doctrine of the cessation of, of spiritual gifts, right? And, and if you're someone who just kind of gets tired thinking about that, don't worry. That's not what our lesson's going to be on this morning. It's not very doctrinal heavy. Uh, but if you are familiar with that, you, you, you read this and you think, ah, yes, you know, I, I know that the apostles could do miracles with X, Y, and Z, but the, the apostolic age and the ceasing, and then we can't because of this, this, and this. And so the conclusion is, well, it doesn't really apply to us. If you're not familiar with that whole uh, rabbit hole of the, the cessation, the spiritual gifts, you, you might see it and sort of think, okay, so the apostles were Christians. Uh, I'm a Christian, they could do that and I can't. So it still probably doesn't really apply to me. 
you're still kind of really unsure what to do with it, so you probably just continue studying. And then, of course, there's the none of the above option where you just you know that you don't know what to do with it, so you just sort of read it, and you think, wonders and signs. Hmm. Anyway, on to verse 24. No matter where exactly uh, our level of understanding is, if you see where I'm going with this, uh, a lot of times when we, when we encounter phrases like this in Scripture, we sort of just almost freeze up because we don't really know what, what to do with that. It's just so different and so radical from sort of how we are used to seeing things that we just we don't know what to do with it. So instead of really trying to dig into it, we can kind of skim over it or, or read around it. And we actually ignore uh, a really cool an amazing part of what the early church could do. And so my goal this morning is for us to change how we read that a little bit and to hopefully offer a, a suggestion or a way of responding to passages like this and to give us an idea of how maybe they do apply to our lives. Uh, so, so we're going to look mainly at the two things, at how we can respond, uh, how we can read passages like this, and then hopefully answer that question that I asked us earlier, and that is, what does this mean to me today? Um, and, and in order to answer these questions, uh, first I want to recognize kind of where I think this breakdown between what the text says and what we do with it usually happens, because there's two big ideas in this verse. I think both of them can kind of go unnoticed or at least uh, mean something different to us than it did to him. And, and the first one is this idea that they responded, the people the church responded to the apostles' actions with a sense of awe or fear or dread, depending on your translation. And then the second thing is, of course, that uh, the apostles were doing, or maybe even the, the, it's related to number one, but they were doing these great wonders and signs, which is, of course, what inspired the, the awe and the fear. So if you're reading this in, uh, in the King James and the New King James, uh, you would see that fear came upon every soul. That's how verse 43 begins. Uh, others would say a sense of awe filled everyone. So just from that right there, that's kind of strange, isn't it? If I said to make a list of all the things that fill you with fear, you'd probably say things like spiders, tall buildings, uh, people with guns. Some of us might even say clowns or crowded elevators. But if I said, what are some things that fill you with awe? Like fireworks, maybe mountains, really tall mountains, the Rocky Mountains, the, the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Smokies, the, the Grand Canyon. These are very different lists. So maybe there's something going on a little bit more here than what we might think of when we think of awe or fear. And that's what we're going to kind of dive into a little bit. Uh, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11, and we are going to begin reading in verse 22. Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning in verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and the, from the river, the river Euphrates to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. 
The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. So we're in Deuteronomy 11 because this is probably one of the earliest examples of Scripture I could even find this idea of fear and this idea of God in the same verse. And what's interesting is it doesn't even really say the fear of God, at least in most English translations. The concept is kind of buried in there in the original Hebrew. Uh, but, but it's interesting to me because when, when maybe it's just my upbringing, but when I was growing up, if somebody put the fear of God in you, that was not good news. Uh, good things were not about to happen for you. If uh, your parents or some adult was telling you and your friends that you're about to have the fear of God put in you, things were not going well. Um, but here, it, it is. Because he's saying, if you obey, I will give you all this land, and I, you will conquer all this, and, and great good things will happen. And he says, the Lord your God will lay the fear of you in your enemies. And like I said, in the original language, there's this idea of like sort of the fear belonging to God, but that he will put it in the enemies, and they will actually fear the Israelites. He's kind of telling them that when I give this land to you, people will fear you because they will look at you and see me. And I think that's probably the closest we really could get to, uh, to what's going on in Acts. Because if, if you think about uh, these characters in the Old Testament, if you think about Moses or, or Joshua, uh, let's be honest. I know if you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, uh, Charlton Heston looked really cool. Uh, but Moses was not striking fear into hearts of anybody. Okay? He was probably very old at this point. Um, and I want you to imagine what somebody probably looks like when they have spent about 40 years of their lives walking around the desert. Okay? We might know a few people in their 50s or 60s that we would say, man, it kind of looks like they spent a lot of time outside when they were younger. Moses spent most of his life outside walking around the desert. Probably hunched over, leathery skin, wrinkly, beaten, leathery, worn looking. He was not somebody who struck fear into the hearts of his enemies. And truthfully, if we go back to our, our context of Acts, neither were Peter and John. But God told them, when you look at me, your enemies will look at you and see me. I think just like Moses and Joshua, when we think about Peter and John, they're not exactly uh, Goliath. They're not soldiers. They're not warriors of any kind. They're not making any list of the mighty heroes of the first century. You're not going to find Peter or John anywhere on that. They were sons of fishermen. Weren't really anybody important or scary. But when God was shown through them, that was a great and awesome thing for people to behold. Because people saw them and they saw that they wielded the power of God. That is the kind of awe and fear that we're dealing with. And so when we read, going back to Acts 2.43, when we read Acts 2.43 and we think, how on earth does this apply to my life? I would ask you, or I would wonder, when was the last time that we read the Word of God with that kind of fear or awe? When was the last time we encountered God in the Scripture, in the Bible, and we were filled with awe? 
I know when uh, when people work in law enforcement, they work in hospitals, or uh, sometimes if they drive ambulances or they're first responders for a long period of time. When you work in these kind of fields, you, you see so many terrible, gruesome, violent things that after a while, they sort of just get numb to it. And they really have to. If you're, if you're showing up on the scene every day to work and someone is dead or bleeding out in front of you, uh, you can't have that visceral first-time reaction every time. It's just not going to work. I, I, I kind of think if I, if I sort of compare that experience to my experience... Um, I, I don't know how you guys are with blood, needles, that sort of thing, or gruesome scenes. Uh, but if I was walking to my car and there was like a body just in the road, uh, I, I would be freaking out a little bit. I'd be a little weird of that. I'd probably, you see me kind of doing this number, trying not to throw up, just like doing deep breaths. Just like, okay, it's all right. But if you were someone who was a paramedic or a doctor, you'd walk up, see what's going on, call 911, and you probably, your, your blood pressure probably even really would go up. Because when your life involves regularly encountering that sort of thing, you just, you develop a numbness to it. You have to, because things still need to get done. And in my understanding, and I want to be careful and say that I don't know this from first-hand experience. This is, this is my understanding of the situation. But my understanding is with people in these fields, especially maybe law enforcement or former military, there's a certain level of disconnectedness that starts to happen in the rest of your life. And it starts causing problems, actually. When you... When you've reached a certain level of emotional disconnectedness, it starts to really impact your ability uh, to have relationships with people, how to encounter normal things in everyday life. It causes problems. And sometimes, I think sometimes when we are exposed to things in the Bible, it's really just the Bible itself over and over, and in our encounters with God have sort of been reduced to a more clinical view of, of black ink on thin, crinkly pages. When we read the scriptures and we're used to kind of just seeing them, but not really taking it to heart or really thinking about what it means or dwelling on it or really soaking in what God is telling us, I think we can find ourselves becoming very spiritually disconnected. I think we can find ourselves growing spiritually numb to what God is telling us. And, just like my other example, that creates problems. Because if I think you read these words, if we could somehow erase all prior knowledge and familiarity with the text, and we sat down to read certain things, like the apostles being stoned, or, or Christ and the way he was sort of treated in the few hours before his death, the things, the good things the apostles did, the healing the blind and the helping them see, I think we would find ourselves filled with a sense of awe. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What does that mean to you? What, 
What sort of places does your mind go to when you hear those words? What sort of memories start coming to the surface? Feelings, probably particular emotions, attachments. So I, I, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I'm not blind. Uh, I was actually very fortunate. I've been gifted uh, with sight my whole life so far. Uh, but it's not hard to imagine for me that if I was blind, if I was blind and I was very suddenly and miraculously struck with the ability to see, that that would be an overwhelmingly joyous and emotional occasion for me. How could it not be, right? So I think if we truly believe, and we don't just read it, we don't just sing about it, we don't just talk about it, but if we truly deep inside of ourselves believe that this gift of salvation is something much, much greater than that, then it's okay to let yourself feel that for just a moment. To actually engage emotionally with the kind of things that are going on. When we, when we read God's word, when we pray, when we worship, to actually involve ourselves fully in what's going on. We might encounter God differently than the apostles. Might not exactly look the same. But we still very much meet with God in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes when we do, a sense of awe or being filled with fear is the appropriate response. A sense of awe came over everyone. The apostles performed many wonders and signs. When we encounter God, I would challenge us to emotionally not disconnect, but to emotionally reconnect, to spiritually reconnect to the ideas that are sort of being communicated to us, to the message that God has for us. Because sometimes a sense of awe is the appropriate response. I said there's two ideas, so I better get on to the second one already, but... Uh, Sense of awe came over everyone, and the apostles performed many wonders and signs. So I said this second idea is this idea of the wonders and the signs themselves. Maybe it's just me sort of, sort of being in ministry or maybe the different environments that I'm in, but if you read texts like this from, from like a, really just from the perspective of evangelism, right, of what it's like to share the gospel now versus then, I think it's a very natural reaction to read this passage and just think, man, if I could do healing, you know how many people would be saved? Like if I could walk down the streets healing people of sicknesses, ah, uh, how easy it would be to get people to believe in God. I think it's a very natural human sort of reaction to, to, to read about these sort of things and want to do the things they could do. But I'm not really sure if it's the best sort of response, especially if we're trying to figure out what this means to us now, here, today. If you remember Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees at one time asked him for a sign. I mean, we know, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? So I'll, I want to look at that for a moment. Turn over to Matthew 12. We'll look at Matthew 12, just about to the end of the chapter, at about verse 38. 
Matthew 12, verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is kind of trying to, he, he's been doing these many works, and he's trying to put into context the things he's been doing uh, for these crowds and for the Pharisees who are asking him for a sign. And I want us to really understand what he's saying before we go tie it back to Acts 2. He starts off, always a good way to, to answer a question, he starts off by condemning them for even asking for a sign. It says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. He says, only the sign of Jonah will be given to you. So what is the sign of Jonah? Well, thankfully, he, he tells us, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He's trying to tell them, you're asking for a sign, but a much greater sign than what you're even thinking to ask for is right in front of you. He said, you know the story of Jonah. And how when he went to Nineveh, they repented when a man crawled out of a fish for three days. And he said, I'm about to die and be in the earth for three days, and you won't listen to me. And because they don't understand the sign of Jonah, they have no idea what he's talking about. So, so he gives them two examples from the Old Testament. He talks about exactly Jonah and how Nineveh repented when, that, when, when he came out of the fish to preach to them. And he also references the queen of the south... And he says, she came from the ends of the earth just to hear Solomon's wisdom. And the wisdom I have to give you is so much greater than that of Solomon. And the specific Old Testament passage he's referencing, by the way, is this, uh, the, the historical figure, the Queen of Sheba, came to visit Solomon. And she came from about modern-day Ethiopia, if you know where that is, sort of on the eastern part of Africa, by horseback to Jerusalem just to hear the wisdom of Solomon, because he was so famed throughout the land. And Jesus said, you won't listen to the man sitting right in front of you. Jesus is trying to tell them, just as he has so many times before, that the Messiah, this anointed one that they've been waiting for, the one they've read about in Moses and the law and the prophets and the, and the one specifically the Jews should know to look for, he says, what I have to give you is so much greater than these prophets that you've read about. What he's really telling them is that for them to ask for a sign means they're ignoring the sign that's right in front of their face. And I think for us to fall in that same vein and to ask for a sign is to kind of ignore the sign we hold in our hands. Let me explain. It's a natural reaction, I think, to hear 
about the apostles healing people or doing great things like raising the dead and, and think, oh, if only I could do that, people would believe. If only I could do that, then certainly uh, this whole evangelism thing would be a lot easier. Except that's exactly what happened in hundreds of thousands of people ignored it. It's an appropriate response, truthfully. The, the historical accounts of Pentecost, especially because of overlap, it, it took place on the Jewish festival of Passover. There was probably roughly a million Jews packed into Jerusalem. And when Peter gave his sermon, it says on that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. It's really easy to look around this room, or even the church today, in sort of our region as a whole, and think, 3,000 people in one day, that is amazing. 3,000 souls out of the church is a great and awesome thing to happen. But what if I told you it was 3,000 out of 1 million people who heard his message? I don't know off the top of my head what percentage that is, but it's not high. It would be a natural reaction to think that if we could do that, it would work for us. But I think it's also deeply, deeply flawed. Because what we're doing is we're not really just asking for a sign, just as the Pharisees did. What we're doing is we're asking for a different sign. We're saying, God, what you've given me isn't going to work. It's not effective. It's not enough. It's not useful. I need more. This is okay. Where's the meat? If you had just given us more evidence, a stronger word, if you had just given us some power, then certainly I could do what the apostles did. But we have the sign. And just as Jesus said, what we have is greater than Jonah and greater than the wisdom of Solomon. And to ask for a different sign is to ignore the one we hold in our own hands. Similarly, to ask for physical healing ignores the so much greater healing that's available to us. We're in Matthew 12. Look just across the page at the end of Matthew 11. I know we've heard this before, but in Matthew 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. I don't think he's talking about giving people an extra hour on their lunch break when their days are really long. But imagine that for a second. Uh, imagine for just a moment if, if Jesus is walking down the streets of Jerusalem and this, this great throng is following him because of the teachings he's giving. He, he's interpreting the law in this brand new way and he's healing people and blind people are seeing, lame people are standing up, people are in all the uproar. Imagine someone fighting their way to the front row of that throng of people following Jesus and saying, Hey, um, you just healed that blind man. Can I have this caught? Because I'm, I'm really tired. I'd just like to nap for about 30 minutes. I mean, what you're doing is really cool, and I get it, but, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a long morning. We had a lot of fish. The nets were very heavy. I just kind of want to lay down. To go to the God of creation and the Savior and Redeemer and to ask for something as small potatoes as physical healing 
is kind of missing the point. It's like walking into Fort Knox and leaving with pocket change. To Jesus, to the apostles, this, the healing the blind and the sick was not the point. To them, that was nothing. The spiritual healing, the message of salvation, of redemption, of, of the vision of what they saw his message would do for mankind, that's, that was the meat. That's why we see these instances with Jesus where he's ministering to people and they, and they say, oh, show us a sign or give us the bread. And he said, are you just here to be filled? Like if you just came for the loaves and the fish, you're missing the point. They were filled with awe and performed many signs and wonders. I think if we could sometimes just a little bit more find ourselves in that position of being filled with awe or fear, we could maybe come to the text with a little bit more of the right perspective. And I think it's natural to, to, to see them do something and think the grass is greener and think for sure if we could do that it would be easier and it would, it would just be... But it kind of misses the much greater sign that we've been given that we're blessed to have. It misses the sign and it misses truthfully the greater healing. We might not be able to heal people of, of smallpox or pull people out of wheelchairs. But the message of healing that God's word has for us is much greater than that. And really, here, 2,000 years later, from the same word, it's the same message we offer as the church today. It's the healing through salvation and reunion with Christ by putting him on in baptism, as we say, the peace that brings to your life. Don't miss the bigger gift. Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you've just come to be filled, you're missing the point. If you're just here to sort of sit in the pews and show up or hear good speaking, you're missing the point. There's a much greater message of healing available to you. We'd like to help you. If you have any need from us, we ask that we made it known this time while we stand and while we sing.